Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Anthony Malaki and I'm the U.S. editor of Waters. And as always, I am joined by Waters news editor, uh, James Rundle. Hi. So today, uh, we've got another guest for you. Um, we have Oliver Harris on the podcast today. Uh, Ali is the head of J.P. Morgan's in-residence program. And we're going to talk about uh, how fintechs are uh, proving disruptive and what that means for the industry going forward and some of the things that are uh, happening at J.P. Morgan as a result. Uh, that will be on just a, just a little bit. After that, um, James and I will be back on and we're going to discuss cross-border settlement and the Target 2 securities platform as Spain and the Baltics have completed the fifth and final planned migration onto the pan-European settlement platform. So we'll get into that in just uh, after uh, Ali is done. Um, before we get to that interview, a um, couple house cleaning notes. Next week, Thursday? Next uh, Thursday. Okay. Next Thursday. So fifth. Yep. Buy Side Technology North America at the Marriott Marquis, of course, in New York City. Um, for change. <laughs> for change. Um, if you've been to our events, and you likely have been there. Um, James, myself, Amelia will be there um, if you want to meet us and chat with us. If you are an end user, um, somebody from a bank, broker, asset manager, hedge fund, exchange, uh, not exchange, that's not an end user, um, <laughs> um, you can get in for free. Tickets are complimentary. Um, and if you want to sponsor, vendor, if you want to figure out how to get involved, um, you can reach out to me, Anthony Malikian. I can direct you. Um, I don't really know how it works, but I'm sure that somebody in this company will be happy to take your money if you sure want to join. Well. Yeah, yeah, we're starting to get our coverage together for next year now, so if you are from an end-user shop and you might be keen to be on the cover next year, come and say hello to us. Happy to talk to you. Absolutely. And also, October 9th uh, will be the last day to submit for the American Financial Technology Awards. Um, I truly don't know if there's an extension. Yeah, usually there's an extension. Absolutely won't be extended by a week, right? <laughs> I Just in case. You never know. Um, I do not know if there is going to be an extension. That's, I'm being 100% honest yeah. about it. Usually there is, but One we'll of these see. years, though, we're going to turn around and go, no extension. Exactly. You're all going to be caught out. So. If we have like a ton already in on the knife, maybe we just yeah. finally decide, you know what, we're going to teach everyone a lesson. I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's not up for me to decide. But again, that day is October 9th. Uh, to get your entries in for the American Financial Technology Awards. Um, we'll link to information on that. Um, so again, uh, James and I will be back in a little bit uh, to discuss uh, T2. And, uh, but until then, um, let's uh, just hear from Ali. Okay, and now I'm joined by Oliver Harris. Uh, he is head of in-residence at J.P. Morgan. Oliver, thanks uh, for being here. No, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no, you're you're based out of London, correct, most of the time, so you're over here in New York? Yeah, correct, here for Finnovate 4. Very good. So today we're going to talk about uh, fintechs and innovation and kind of take a look at how J.P. Morgan sees, um, sees this kind of, you know, something that's been challenging for, presented both opportunities and challenges, I guess, for firms. So maybe to start off with, Looking at the fintech space as a whole, how would you kind of define it and how do you see its evolution so far? Got it, yeah, great question. So in terms of um, how we define fintech, and, and just to clarify, I cover our capital markets and wholesale um, banking divisions. Um, we look at fintech as 
you know, obviously nothing new. There's always been technology and finance have, have always been intrinsically linked. However, what we are seeing are a series of emerging trends and technologies mm -hmm. that have the potential to fundamentally reshape the way we do business. And these are, you know, the cloud, mm -hmm. uh, artificial intelligence, uh, distributed ledger or, or blockchain, and uh, robotic process automation. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of trends, I would say the focus on design thinking, um, you know, ensuring that, and mobile as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd say that that's what's different. And we look at any company or product against those lines and see how they translate into you know the products and services that we offer to clients today. Okay. Before we get into some of actual use cases and stuff like that, maybe people might not be as familiar with in-residence uh, mm -hmm. what this is. Um, so maybe talk about you know what the, what that program is and how kind of JP Morgan how it plays into JP Morgan's broader um, technology scheme. Sure. So um, just to take a step back in terms of how JP Morgan is leading the way in fintech, um, there's there's really three key things that that we do. One, um, we've created a dedicated team to look at these emerging trends and technologies and how they translate into our business. In addition to that, we're building in-house capabilities, um, hiring in designers, data scientists, you know, top talent engineers to actually focus on building products internally okay. for our clients and our, and our employees. The second is we have a very structured way to engage with the fintech um, ecosystem through our strategic investments teams and our tax strategy and partnership teams that are out there looking at companies and assessing their value proposition against our client needs. Mm -hmm. And then the third in residence, which I can do a bit of a deep dive um, case study on, is, is JP Morgan's unique platform to connect innovators with JP Morgan's expertise to actually co-create product and then move that into production. Okay. Um, and I'm happy to go through in a bit more detail on why it's different to a traditional VC or, or accelerator. Sure. Models. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe because I think that in traditionally people are familiar with the VC space, with the accelerator programs, but how do you kind of think yours is different? Sure. So in terms of why in residence is unique and why it's different, and, and just to caveat, this is not, uh, you know, replacing any of the existing uh, methods for incumbent banks to engage with you know, early stage startups or universities, it's accretive to what we're already doing. So what can you do already? One, you can invest, uh, you can deploy capital either in a corporate VC or on, on a strategic basis. And something we've been doing for many years is, is investing in companies when it aligns with JP Morgan's strategic interests. Okay. That's one. The second is having a tech BD function that is out there scouting startups, building bridges with universities and you know key actors that can help provide access to new technology and talent. Okay. And then um, the third, which is which is where in residence comes in, is actually joining the glue, the gaps between, you know, we're not just here to invest and we're not just here to use companies as vendors. What, you, what we need to do, given 
the emergence of these new trends and technologies and the wave of new startups that have been created as a result mm -hmm. is we need a very structured way to meet companies and when suitable take them from pitch ready to enterprise ready okay. so that's different from accelerators that are really here to make companies pitch ready and um, we're not spending you know a let's say around three months helping a company get ready and there's there's no demo day what we're doing is very different we're saying we're finding all the startups we're then assessing them against our client needs we're vetting them against alternative execution models i.e could we build it in-house is it actually suitable to partner with a fintech mm -hmm. and is it really solving an industry problem mm -hmm. and if it is solving an industry problem and they need help from JP Morgan to go from pitch ready to enterprise ready, we then embark on a journey where it might be three months, it might be two years, everything is actually tailored to the problem the startup's working on. And we agree a plan together and then we and then we get going. Okay. And I think the the key part of why this program is unique is we're we're aligning incentives across four key dimensions. One the product, what does the company actually do? What help do they need from JP Morgan to actually scale their company? Mm -hmm. To the technology, again, how does how does their offering stack up against other internal offerings and vendor offerings? Three, commercial agreement, i.e. how expensive are they? Can we help them with their business model? And what's the business case around the proposition they're building? And then last is strategic investment and capital. Okay. and. With our team, we're neutral. We sit, um, you know, in the business, supported by, you know, the the senior management of J.P. Morgan Chase, and the idea is, people on my team are ensure that those four dimensions run in parallel, okay. and that we actually get things built and and moved into production. Okay, can you give me an example? So, of maybe a success story, maybe a couple. You know, could you talk about how? kind of some areas of focus from RPA to cloud to DLT to AI. What maybe are some uh, success cases that you so far have been able to kind of feed along that path? Sure, so I'll give you a range of um, case studies just to show how diverse and flexible the program is. Um, one is a company called H4. Um, it's founded by a group of former JP Morgan um, employees. And, and what they're looking to do is create a, a workflow tool and digital platform mm -hmm. to improve the origination process, um, focusing today on debt capital markets. Um, and I, I would think of them as a um, Google Docs plus Dropbox specific to capital markets. Okay. Re really interesting company. And what we've been doing with them over the last year is taking them from an early stage MVP um, and I'll just go through the, the four dimensions on the product side we've actually put space in both our London and New York offices for their employees to work in okay. given they need regular access to our people to help iterate their product as one mm -hmm. well. on a technology basis they work hand in hand with our engineers and we've actually seconded 
um, an engineer to, to help work you know, full time to ensure that the integration with JP Morgan um, is successful um, and provide advice on cloud security, you know, infosec, um, to ensure that they meet, you know, our minimum requirements for integration. Okay. Um, on a commercial basis, helping them think through their business model and then actually investing in the company as well to ensure they have enough funding to, to scale their business. Um, in terms of where they are today, you know, very, very interesting company, um, you know, about to launch their first, you know, beta offering to the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think something we think is like very promising. So I think that's one case study where they, they're living in a JP Morgan building for a set period of time. Mm-hmm. They're solving an industry challenge. So it's beneficial for the whole street. And the idea is that one, once they're ready, they will, they will leave the program and actually, you know, move into a vendor relationship with us mm-hmm. and solve, you know, a variety of pain points that, um, you know, our employees and the wider industry faces in, um, in this origination process. So I think that's one case study that, that shows um, it, an intense version where we're doing full-on incubation. Sure. Uh, if I contrast that with another company, um, a company called... Nivora. They're doing, um, again, another great company. They're doing, um, you know, bond issuance on the blockchain in a workflow tool. And here, again, we're taking a very, um, more of a lighter touch approach. So so they they already have their own office. um, And here we're really providing, again, the same challenge team, which Mm -hmm. are senior leaders and the right SMEs from product, technology, and the front office. So we assemble unique teams for each startup. But here, we're not doing full-on incubation. We're more acting as thought advisors, helping them on their journey. And, and this is actually something we're doing in partnership with um, you know, one of the UK regulators, the FCA Sandbox Initiative. Okay. Um, so again, that's more of a lighter-touch model. But the theory here is that you know, if we were to move them into a production state, we've already started you know, the journey early on the thought leadership piece. Okay. So we're helping steer you know, the strategy of the company. Um, and again, if trying to like bake in success from day one. So I think those, those are two clear examples that show the, the range of um, opportunities. And I think just to close on this point to say that you know, everything is genuinely tailored and bespoke to each early stage company we work with um, and we ensure that we have the right buy-in in terms of senior management and people at the working level that can actually help these companies and at every stage of the journey we're, in, we're trying to align incentives to ensure that it's mutually beneficial both for you know the company we're working with, our partner and JP Morgan and our clients needs. Okay. And the benefit for you guys is I'm assuming that you take a stake in the company once they go public. Um, and then you kind of have first dibs, I would guess, then on anything that you were like, no, this is really good, we're going to keep this proprietarily, or this is an industry-wide thing, so we're going to be better served having this out in the industry. Mm-hmm. Is that how it works? So, so um, some of that, I think, why are we doing this? Um, I like to say it's like a, f- it's a fourth way of doing business. Um, traditionally, we would build product internally. We would 
acquire companies and integrate them or we'd partner with established vendors. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference now is given these emerging technologies, especially, you know, the cloud and, and APIs, um, instead of large corporates, and this is not, not just for financial services, instead of um, CTOs being incentivized to use a small number of providers on-premise, mm -hmm. we're now moving to a world where, where we're disaggregating product and what this means is um, you still have the JP Morgan wrapper delivering products and services to clients, mm -hmm. but the, the people and the companies delivering those products is more modular. So s some elements will be our proprietary product, others will be established vendors. And then the third category is early stage companies that can scale and service enterprise, whereas historically, you know, early stage companies couldn't scale and work with enterprise. Mm -hmm. So as a result, given you can now have an early stage company that services billions of customers, you know, like WhatsApp before it was sure. acquired, um, we now need a new way, we need new processes and new skills and a new way of working to actually collaborate with early stage companies. And I, so I think that's one is we, it's, you just, you have to. Sure. And I think more broadly, it's because we want to use these companies in our production environments to service our clients or our employees. Ultimately, that's to deliver shareholder value, whether it's you know driving incremental revenue, minimizing costs or, or capital. Mm -hmm. um, and the second, I would also say, is um, you know access to talent and ensuring that you know we're out there showing that we're collaborating with you know early stage companies and ensuring that you know we're credible and have access to talent which i think is great mm -hmm. um and sharing information between us you know um, when suitable and then the third thing just to pick up on your point about access to technology you know earlier on in the maturity cycle actually the a lot of what we're doing through in residence is 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 focused on industry problems and i think that's a really key part of our program is while it benefits the company we're working with and jp morgan it also benefits the street and i think the key thing here is we're being you know very pragmatic around um you know ensuring that the companies we're working with you know we're not here to create companies that are that just service jp morgan sure. They should actually service the whole street when it's when it's suitable, um, and that's where a lot of the you know contracting and onboarding, you know, on a case by case basis, we're we're being, um, you know, very pragmatic. Whether that's on matters of like IP, um, and so on and so forth, just to ensure that, you know, JP Morgan is helping these companies and the companies are helping us but we're not also putting the companies at a disadvantage when they're ready to go and scale to other clients okay and then just to wrap things up um you know obviously robotic process automations uh taking on more popular cloud is being used in different functions i think that two things that get talked about the most in our world anyway at least here at water technology are around um, machine learning and around blockchain mm -hmm. those seem to get kind of the most interest as far as you know re clicks on stories and stuff do you see with the companies that you're working with do you see one or the other kind of being the 
showing more promise than the other perhaps and as we go forward into 2018 and we see the technology development in the industry yeah great question P personally i i feel um i think they they're both going to have you know transformational effects i think the question is is on the timing mm -hmm. um and the adoption by you know all the industry actors um you know personally i think on a on a blockchain perspective if you'd asked that question about three years ago that was when it was the beginning of this um, journey that we're now on and blockchain was was all the vogue and, and yeah. hype and then this year and you can see it from you know all the all the media is like ai it's now ai machine learning is sure. um time yeah. um and i think you have these natural hype cycles um however personally i think they're they're both as important um, on the blockchain side, we have a great team, um, our blockchain center of excellence that is looking at, um, you know, building products internally, partnering with the right companies, and actually thinking through, you know, how how will this impact capital markets? Mm -hmm. um, and I think one key thing to note is is obviously uh, Quorum, mm -hmm. which we um, which we op open sourced. Um, and then the second on on the machine learning and artificial intelligence side, we also have a, not, a dedicated team looking at this within the bank, and I think both have the potential to, um, you know, transform the way we do business and equally as exciting. Well, Oliver, thanks uh, so much for coming into our office and chatting with us. Great, thanks for having me. All right, again, uh, thanks to Ali for coming on the show. Um, and we're also looking to lock in more guests on the, for the podcast. Yes. Um, for later on. Uh, this year. Episode one hundred is coming up as well, so we have to do something. I mean, hopefully we can get Dan to finally stop working on Risk for a little bit. <sighs> Maybe I'm a little bit nervous after calling him a dickhead so many times. <laughs> so, you know. We'll see what happens. Um, so when uh, I was asking James, what should we talk about uh, outside of? Um, what Oliver's conversation was on fintechs. He said, what about T2S? And I was like, oh man, that's dope. There's going to be a new Terminator movie? Fantastic. Yeah. I'm excited. Exactly. Apparently it's not about the Terminator. No, and then two hours later when I finally wake you up. Uh, yeah, here we so. are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's, I had to do some research on what T2S is and that led to me having a conversation about Catherine Zeta-Jones, Michael Douglas, Kirk Douglas, and who knows where else that, that conversation spiraled into. Yeah, exactly. But T2S is actually quite exciting if you're a bit of a market structure geek. So um, yeah. well, I guess just a little background. James is going to be the expert on this one. Um, September 19th, uh, Spain, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, their central securities depositories announced their successful migration to the Target 2 security settlement platform. Um, this guys, guys, wake up! Yep, yep, come on now, come on. <laughs> um, this was the technically the final migration, the fifth and final planned migration um, uh, to the Pan uh, European Settlement Platform. Yes, I don't know what really any of that means, James. Why don't you tell us? Uh, so, a lot of this is set against the context of the single market in Europe, which has traditionally been open borders, um, but very difficult to actually transact in a capital market sense across them because you have different tax laws, you have different settlement processes, um, you have different rules and regulations depending on the country you're in. There's 28 countries, soon to be 27 uh, in the European Union. Um, so what's the... 
the uh, European Commission did a while back was they set out to identify what those barriers were. And they're called Giovannini barriers, after the man who led the group that did it. Um, T2S is a project that's been conceived and operated by the European Central Bank, designed to break down those barriers, um, so as to help create a capital markets union, like a single capital market in Europe, um, in a post-trade sense. So what it does is it allows um, securities that are denominated in central bank money, so mm-hmm. Europe, Europe denominated securities, really, to be um, settled centrally in this one platform. Um, before, the, all the central securities depositories, the CSDs, used to handle it individually in each country, and there's a bit of a mess. So some are obviously very advanced. You have your clear streams, you have your euro clears, um, the big boys of the world. Um, and then you have kind of, you know, the smaller countries, ones who aren't necessarily as technically sophisticated. Um, sure. Probably worth noting the UK decided to opt out of this. Um, before. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Uh, vote leave. Yeah, vote leave, yes, yeah, exactly. It's probably quite prescient. Uh, but, um, yeah, so this uh, was going on for a few years. Um, it started getting off the ground in 2015 uh, with the first migration wave. And as you said, uh, September 19th is the final planned one, so... The project's now complete, um, not without its hiccups. I mean, there are a lot of delays to even the first wave of migration because there were technology problems. Um, Monte Titoli, the Italian CSD, um, mm-hmm. delayed by about uh, about two or three months, I think, because yeah, there was a lot of problems going on. And for a while, everyone kind of thought maybe this is going to fail, but you know, credit to them, they stuck it out, and it's it's in place now. And it's working. So while the, we we use the firm, the final plan migration now is part of this migration phase. It sounds like from when I was reading, so Agalos has been covering this for us in um, Europe and doing an excellent job of being on top of it. Um, but I was also reading um, that the Danish Krone uh, will be migrated over next year, which will make uh, T2S a multi-currency platform. Yeah, so it's not just the euro; it'll be the Krone as well. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there are kind of a this is kind of the migration plan they had to get the CSDs on. It's by no means finished, I think. As you say, they're making it multi-currency, and then I think the Finnish CSDs have to come on board as well. As in later. Finland. Yes. As opposed yeah. to being finished with this conversation. Well, yeah, <laughs> we may be <laughs> sooner than you might think. Um, kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things I thought was interesting, so this is about 10 years in the making, right? Um, probably less than that, but it's substantial. Well, I guess from when the, the idea first came about to yeah, so the, the barriers were kind of first, like um, first kind of drawn up in the first decade of the uh, of the millennium, and then yeah, from that on to here, and now the European Union has uh, launched its capital markets union kind of formal plan. Um, this has taken on a lot more kind of urgency to get this done, so people can actually start to integrate that. If the first migration happened in two thousand fifteen. Mm-hmm. Have there been any real effect? Has anybody put out any research, any reports as to say, here are the benefits that we have seen? This was worthwhile. Uh, well, not too, too early to tell. I mean, if you ask the ECB about it, then yeah, that's the answer you get. Oh, it's too early to tell. We need some years of data because the mm-hmm. ECB moves at the pace of an iceberg sometimes. Um, it's had a definite effect already on CSDs, though, and you can see that. Um, because essentially what you're doing with T2S is that you're taking the core function of a CSD, which is to settle these transactions, and outsourcing it to the European Central Bank. So they no longer have that kind of core business to follow anymore. Um, and so they're focusing on their ancillary services, things like asset servicing. There's also some consolidation taking place. So I mm-hmm. think uh, actually in that fifth wave, which Agalos covered, um, the Baltic CSDs from Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania actually combined into one CSD under NASDAQ. Okay. Um, 
because that's the only way these smaller people are going to be able to survive. They yeah, don't have that. Yeah, article we wrote previously about that one, right? Yeah, yeah, a few years ago when this first came out. Um, yeah, the big guys are going to be fine. Um, but you are starting to see this already. And also you're seeing it in the kind of interest that these guys are taking in things like blockchain and trying to get ahead of that curve because they see themselves as being able to take private move advantage on it. Sure. Mm-hmm. This would sound like one of those areas where blockchain might actually have... Assessment, yeah. Impact. I mean, yeah. this is the, the one use case which I've um, seen and thought, you know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can use it in assessment, um, not in clearing, but definitely for things like this. And that's what the CSDs argue as well, saying, well, we're perfectly placed. We can operate a blockchain. Um and all this can happen. No, I'm not sure how that interacts with T2S necessarily, and like kind of now they've done that, outsourced that to T2S. Why would you need to have a blockchain and a CSD? Because yeah. surely you need a blockchain in T2S to do it. But um, yeah, so they're looking at the next stages now. Um, Agalos uh, got a nice little scoop uh, that they're looking at sort of combining Target, which is the real-time growth settlement system, um, so for more for kind of large and scale corporate payments and such um, mm-hmm. with Target two securities. To create a truly pan-European, all-seeing, all-dancing payment and settlement platform. Okay, that's good. We will link to that story, um, and obviously, as more developments happen, I'm sure uh, Agolos will be all over for us. Um, since there is no chance in a million years that I could write anything about that, I moved to the states to escape it. So yeah, that's exactly, it's, uh, exactly. <laughs> this, this is, is great. Yeah, you're like <laughs> Mifid Two is happening, GDPR, all this T2S. Like, now nah, let me go over this US. Is great. Uh, it has kept me in uh, kept me in Luca for years. All these stories come out, but now I don't have to do anything. Now it's over and find something like, else. Dad Frank, I'm over in Europe. <laughs> yeah, this, this all kind it. of comes in. I'll be over here. Yeah. Um, so um, again, thanks to Oliver Harris um, for coming on, and uh, you know we always like to. Just uh, talk at the end. Originally, mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know what? Big sports fan. Obviously, with the idiotic remarks that our president made, um, calling people exercising their First Amendment rights, um, tons of bitches, stuff like that. Like, yep. we got to talk about that. Which is amazing. Um, yeah. But then I started thinking about it. And I, I read, to, you know, I have subscriptions to the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and New York Times, as well as numerous magazine uh, subscriptions. I'm an avid political reader. Mm-hmm. I am up to date on politics. I watch the Sunday morning shows. I don't watch cable news, but, you know. Um, you know, and I like to go to good comedy outlets, you know, you know, sometimes I watch The Daily Show. Jim Jeffries has a new show on Comedy Central, which I absolutely love Jim Jeffries. Um, John Oliver, you know, I sort of like his show, you know, usually, but, so I get my political take. You get your fix. Yeah. Sports is my reference. Yeah, I just like, I, I, you know, I just want to be able to watch a football game and not have any kind of, I don't, I understand that there are bigger political things, I just want to watch sports. That's all I want. That's fine. And, I mean, this isn't going to last from... We'll abandon it the next time something else comes up. Sure. Uh, this was all just to get people off of the whole healthcare bill kind of debacle that's falling apart. The fact that he's been trying to be bipartisan and, mm-hmm. you know, he needs something to lash out at. and Make people forget that he's buddy-buddy with Chuck Schumer. And, you know, uh, right, exactly, yeah. Too. And also maybe misdirect a bit from what's happening in Puerto Rico. But, you yeah, know, it's... Uh, so, basically, this all to say, you, I'm sure you all get your politics. I, I'm tired of hearing about politics from plate like when Jimmy Kimmel's going on just diatribes about healthcare reform and stuff like that he's got every right to say it yep that's I have every right to change the channel because I'm just I just kind of want to laugh just, a little yeah, bit I'm sick of it I don't okay. need my late night guys to be you know trying to tear jerk me you know and this is it this political climate and the way things have been I just I don't want to talk about it anymore that's just you know I suppose that's how they win right yeah. because you get so tired of it but, exactly um, 
I'm just, yeah, I'm like you at the end of my rope. <laughs> this kind of stuff. And sports, man. Sports, yeah. Yeah. So if you want to talk to us about it, take us out for a beer. I'm sure we can talk to you there. But we decided, okay, so we'll, well that was easy topic to talk about right there. That one was the one that would have been easy. Uh, so we don't have that. I'm, I am a boxing nerd. Yes. As we established last week, James is a sci-fi nerd. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about Golovkin versus uh, Canelo Alvarez in boxing. I'll discuss that. Yep. James will discuss Star Trek's reboot here and what he thought of the first episode. So let's go into that first. Okay. Um, it was good. It was... Uh, it What's the name of the show, first of Discovery. all? Discovery. It's called Star, Star Trek, Trek Discovery. Discovery. Um, it's on CBS. Mm-hmm. Um but only for the first episode. The first episode was released on the like general cable network. Um, after that, you have to subscribe to their streaming service, All Access. Um, so it won't be on television anymore? Well, internationally, it's getting syndicated onto Netflix, I think. But in okay. the US, you have to do it through All Access. And it's kind of this new vanguard, which is actually really interesting. Um, so looking at how the TV industry is responding to uh, the challenges on the core cutting, exactly, yeah. And... I mean, a lot of my friends are going, I can't believe you're paying $6 a month for CBS. I'm like, you know what? Uh, the quality was good on the show. They put some money into it. It's a premium cable show. Um, and in a previous life, as, as many of you probably know, I used to be an entertainment reporter. So I'm, I'm kind of, I understand the economics of how to make television and how, what the kind of effects that Netflix and Hulu and things like that have had on um, TV. And it's not good. I mean, uh, the studios don't get the money they used to anymore. Um, and this is not just Netflix and Hulu, but piracy and everything else that's put pressure on it. It means less shows get made, it means your entertainment suffers as a result. So what CBS is doing is, I think a lot of the networks are watching with interest to see, okay, could this be a model? Could we then say, you want the last season of Game of Thrones, well, HBO already does, I guess, to an extent, but, you know, mm-hmm. something like a new show, like a new Breaking Bad or something, could Fox then say, fine, but you've got to subscribe to Fox. Yeah. Um, same with the sports do it now, to a certain extent. If you want to watch the Premier League, you've got to subscribe to NBC Sports, you know? Yeah. Um, being sports is another one now. That being sports be is another one, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's interesting, yeah. A lot of the networks are looking at this, uh, seeing if CBS can make it work with such a banner marquee show as Star Trek, which people will pay money for because mm-hmm. it's a kind of a lifelong obsession for a lot of people. Um, that's the interesting part of it. On the show itself, um, it was really good. I thought it was a good science fiction show. Um, it felt a bit like someone had a good idea for a science fiction show, took it to CBS, and they said, yeah, cool, we'll make it, but you've got to make it Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't have that Star Trek feel of um, got a uh, Enterprise, Deep Space Nine, yeah, deep, uh, next generation. Like next generation. It, it was, it was kind of closer thematically, I guess, to the original series um, visually to the films that just come out with Chris Pine and everything. Um, a lot of lens flares. Um, it just felt like a very dark post nine eleven gritty kind of drama. Um, that again was really good, but kind of cherry picks what it wanted from Star Trek's kind of backstory and everything just to make it Star Trek. Um, so, like, you have the lightsabers and all that. Yeah, God, I'm going to lean across this table and punch <laughs> you in a second. <laughs> but, like, it doesn't work. Like, it's been trying to be a bit too contemporary. And, like, Star Trek's always been a political show. Uh, yeah. Like, from the very first season back in 1966, it was hugely political. Um, this goes a bit too far by making the Klingons into, like, space ISIS. And, like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, uh, Space ISIS, that's Space a horrifying ISIS. thought. Yeah, but, know, uh, exactly, yeah. Um, but uh, that's pretty much what the only thing I can think of really to describe them. Um, I've seen two episodes. Uh, I did enjoy it. I don't feel I've got into the story of the show yet, so I'm going to see what happens after that. 
It keeps turning. I'll never say this to our colleague Faye Kilburn on Rescue. Is very keen on how to properly address gender issues, but they mm-hmm. name the main character, the female character, Michael. So it just really took me out of it every time. Um, and I'm like, that's not a girl's name. She's <laughs> trying to touch it sensitively. Is she part of the? Is this character uh, transgender? No, no, she's just a woman. Her name is like Michael. Michael. Um, I thought it was Micah at first, and. I mean, I don't really care as a character's name, but like it was one of those things that kept taking me out. Like when I was watching, going, "Is the name actually Michael?" And that the character is saying, "Call Michael over," and then I'm trying now to think if I've ever heard of a female name Michael. I don't think I have. I mean, there are some names that obviously cross. Maybe somebody called Mike, but their name's like you know, it's like Mike Micah or something you can get, but or like Dana is a dual gendered name, yeah, and uh, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, Michael. That's very strange. it was quite cool. It did kind of. It was essentially the plot of the first new Star Trek film, like almost down to a T at the beginning, to the point where you even had the captain and the first officer beaming over at the end of it and fighting the Klingons and that kind of thing. But it was all right. We'll see how it goes. Um, seems to be split opinions on it. But yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the similar theme I heard. I didn't watch it because there's no chance of paying <laughs> CBS, you know, to watch some Star Trek show. Um, but that. It just didn't have the feel of Star yeah, Trek. I mean, I think it ways. says something when the Orville is out of Fox at the moment. That's got Seth MacFarlane from Family Guy yeah. doing that. Um, and th- it does say something when I've seen three episodes of that, and that was way more Star Trek, the send up, <laughs> than the actual Star Trek show. But uh, there we go. I'm something of a purist. So, mm-hmm. Let's talk about a man sport. A man sport. Yeah, you know, real, real gritty stuff, you know, uh, boxing. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And also, he says that he won't pay $6 a month to uh, watch a nerd show, but he will pay $70 to watch half an hour of men hissing each other. <laughs> I literally spend, let's see here, I, between boxing and UFC each month, it's probably on average of about $150 a month just to go and watch it. And then that doesn't include your my HBO and Showtime which basically I get, well, HBO would get no matter what, but my Showtime subscription is almost solely for boxing and stuff yeah, like that. So. That's cool, man. It's what you enjoy. Like, it's what we were talking about earlier. The world's so like, dark now and horrible. Yeah, exactly. that I need to watch men beating the exactly. piss out of each other. All we need to do is just spend what little money we have on nerd shit that makes us happy. <laughs> so anyway, talk to me about Canelo. Well, basically, I just wanted to say, you know, that because a lot of people I've spoken with, you know, they were, they were so entertained by... The Mayweather-McGregor fight. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, oh, it was a great fight. The ending was great. Everything it was like... Truly in America, I'm not sure. I'm not going to speak for Brits and stuff like that. But we like a finality. We like a definite winner and definite loser. Yep. Rather than watching Canelo versus uh, Triple G, uh, Gennady Golovkin, um, was just boxing at its best. Its absolute best. It was... Skillful power punching, true hard hitting power punching. And these are two like, guys at the top of the game, right? At the, at the middleweight yeah. division, which yeah. is like the premier. Everybody talks about how great the 80s was. Mm-hmm. This was better, far better than watching Hagler Leonard, for sure. This was better than Hagler Duran, even though it was a very good competitive fight that surprised a lot of people. This was the best middleweight fight that I could, you know, just competitiveness. And the the fact that there were ebbs and flows to it, you know, that that's important because you watch one guy just beat the piss out of another guy for 10, 11 rounds, and clearly he won. You know, yeah, it can be entertaining because you just hit him hard, but you want to you want the back and forth, some right? drama, you want a contest, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that uh, uh, Saul Alvarez came marching back uh, at the end to win the last couple of rounds, I had it a draw on my scorecard. I watched a replay on HBO. Um, 
uh, this past Saturday. And again, I scored it a draw. I think 115-113 for seven rounds of five for Gennady Golovkin is, is a very good scorecard. It's probably the best scorecard. It seems to be the people in the media that, that they feel that seven to five is the best scorecard. It's for people that don't know the controversy, uh, um, God, I can't remember her name. I can't believe I forgot her name. Um, whatever the hell her name is. She scored the fight 118-110 for Canelo Alvarez. Oh, was this the judge who no one was quite sure why she was a judge there? Or was, was that? Was that someone who... She's she, always been a judge. She's been a long time, but she's okay. had a ton of bad um, uh, scorecards. It's not Patricia Jarman, man, was it? I can't remember. Um, but so it was 118-110, and that was a horrible scorecard. It was terrible. And because she scored it that wide, so she scored it for Alvarez... One judge scored it for Triple G. One judge had it 114-114 draw. It's a draw fight. Right. And everybody lost their mind because they figured, oh, well, this is a fix. And Okay, so that 118-110, let's say if she had it 114-114, Max Kellerman's been making this point. It's a draw. A draw, a, a result of a draw was not robbery. Yeah. Golovkin probably deserved the decision, but it's when you're, when you're asked to score around 10 to 9, it's subjective, just the mm-hmm. way it is. And it, it just goes to show you that in the U.S., we absolutely hate draws. It's why the NHL now, we have this stupid shootout at the end of games because we're like, no, nah, we can't have a, a regular season game one of 82 end in a draw. Who cares? It's ridiculous, yeah. It makes no sense. It's all other sports, like, you know, it, until you reach a final, and yeah. in which case you have to decide it, right? Just draw it. It's like <laughs> baseball, they play 162 games. Yet though they'll still make you play a twenty inning game just because you have to have that one win or that loss. Because nope, we as Americans will refuse yeah. a tie. So that just had me laughing. But people, I'd say that was robbery. You just don't know what you're talking about. And everybody's like, "Oh, well, that was a bad result for boxing." Let me tell you something here. Okay, this sport loves controversy. It thrives yeah. on controversy. The next day, everybody was talking about that sport. Mm-hmm. It was leading shows, and in the Monday and Tuesday, it was still on all the major sports shows. Whereas that, if it was just a clear-cut win for Triple G, they would have said, great fight for Triple G, wonderful, what's on next? Okay, next subject, basketball, football, yeah. you know, and all this. That's so, why you got the talking heads, you got the panels, you got everything. Everybody talked about it, they'll be able to sell the, the second fight. Boxing loves controversy. It loves the shadiness. It lives. It thrives off of this. So this idea that it was a bad result for the sport is just stupid. But if you haven't watched the fight and you have HBO Go, it is as good as boxing gets. Yes, it ends in a draw. Can you not just watch 48 minutes no. of is it 12 times 3? 46 minutes. <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. Whatever. Of just action and Hard, hard punch. Like, that's the other thing. It's not just jabs and stuff like that. Triple J has a great jab. But just truly um, entertaining, violent, but beautiful violence. Just yeah. skillful Controlled violence. Controlled violence. Yeah. yeah. Very, very good fight. I highly recommend you watch it. All this talk that it's bad or anything like that. It's been a great break. summer for boxing, actually, hasn't it? A revitalization of interest in it. Yeah. Thing. I mean, obviously, Tribble's the, the McGregor fight. But, the um, McGregor fight brought a lot of interest. But, yeah, there have been a lot of good fights with Anthony yeah. Joshua. Do you know what the um, the figures were for the viewing on the second fight? I'm not 100% sure yet. i got to check those out. Interesting I don't, I don't know if they... it had a boost in its audience that retained it from the McGregor thing. Yeah. Sort of, you know. Well, you know what's funny is that fight, the wake of 
Mayweather McGregor end up being so long that people weren't ready to talk boxing again. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it might have the buildup was a little bit hurt by that. You didn't hear mm-hmm. as much as I expected about it, but. I think it did just fine. Um, so then you had the Klitschko fight in April as well, which I uh, don't know yeah, how that okay. was over here, but it had a lot of interest in the UK. But well, it, it wasn't a huge interest over here, but that mm. fight was, anybody that watched that fight was like blown out of their mind. Like yeah. that, that was great. And yeah, Joshua was going to be returning. Do you remember? It was, it was the night before my best friend's wedding and uh, <laughs> we got back to, uh, after the rehearsal dinner to the this hotel in the middle of nowhere and there's one pub that was staying open and showing and we all kind of went there and piled into like yeah. three in the morning watched the fight and then Woke up the next morning and didn't tell him. He goes, what the hell happened to you guys? <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough thing, man. It's like yeah. when you have boxing over here, I'm like, it always amazed me. Like when Brits, like, because like when Ricky Hatton was fighting over here and stuff mm. like that, you know, that fight would go off at midnight here in the East Coast. Yeah. So it's five, five in the morning, morning. people are yeah, staying. Jeez, yeah. how did anybody even remember? Probably didn't remember watching it, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a liberal application of alcohol often. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we got. Um, again, Trying to just avoid uh, some politics, hopefully, just talk about entertaining stuff yeah. and fintech and T2S. I mean, come on, yeah. don't you want to talk T2S rather well, than politics? Nerd shit that makes you happy, that's all we have now. So. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, so, again, next week, Thursday, Buy Side Technology North yeah. America. We'll See you be there, there, hopefully. Yeah. Um, we got uh, the, the, the keynote is going to be the CIO of Janice Henderson Investors. Uh, or C-Level Roundtable immediately following. So that's at 9 o'clock, then 9.30, the C-Level Roundtable. Um, we have Credit Suisse Asset Management, Black Diamond Capital Management, the Black Zone Group, um, and a former Lord Abbott CIO. So we got a really good start today, and then we're going to discuss everything under the sun as it relates to the buy side. And uh, October 9th, get your afters in, because just in case we don't offer just an extension. This mercurial way of doing things decides to go against you for once. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> Anything else, James? I think that's it. Uh, just one more reminder that uh, I am going to be in Cybos, uh, yes. at Cybos, sorry, in Toronto, um, October the 16th that week. So if you do want to meet up, if you want to chat about fintech, if you want to chat about AI, you want to just go for a beer, more than happy to meet up. Give me a shout. Right. Well, thank you all for joining in, and we'll see you next week. Cheers, guys.